up in the night he and all his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead and he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said rise up and get you out of here go on beat it and leave my people both you and the children of Israel and go serve the Lord as you have said take your flocks and take your herds as you have said be gone bless me also and the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we all be dead men, and we be all dead men. Welcome to the Unchanging Word Radio Bible Study. Our teacher is Dr. John G. Mitchell, and our conviction is that the Word of God has never changed and never will. The truth in God's Word was, is, and always will be true. God never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 51, Pharaoh hurries Moses and Aaron out of the land of Egypt. Now the people of Egypt were more than urgent to send the people of Israel out of the land, so that if anything more were to happen to them, they would all be dead. So the Lord's people began their exodus from the land of slavery, the land of Egypt. Now a mixed multitude went up with them, and these later on caused trouble for Moses and the people. Moses writes how at the end of 430 years to the very day, they all left the land of Egypt. You know, God is always on time, as Dr. Mitchell shares with us. Jesus was always on time when he was born, when he died, when he rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples. Can you and I trust him for our time schedule? Yes, we can. Well, here's Dr. Mitchell on the Unchanging Word Bible Broadcast. Today, friends, again we come to you with our studies in the book of Exodus, and we've been spending some time in the 12th chapter dealing with the Passover. And you remember that God gave to Moses the ordinance uh, of the, shall I say, the seven days of unleavened bread, which they were to keep down through their generations. So that as the families met on Passover, when the, when the children should ask why, they were ready to give an answer of how the Lord redeemed them out of Egypt. I've oftentimes wondered, you know, about the wonderful, wonderful grace of God. You ever think of it? He didn't choose the well-equipped, well-taught, uh, wise Egyptians. He took a race of slaves, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and allowed them to be over 430 years in the land of Egypt, most of that time under bondage and chose them to be his people, his firstborn. And I think of that, if I may carry it over to us today, and if I may quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, not many wise men after the flesh, not many noble are called, but God has taken the weak things of this world, the things that are despised, the things that are nothing, to confound the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's why I love to think of the fact that our Savior is both a prince and a Savior, and he's a Savior of sinners. 
No one can fit himself for that. For dead in trespasses and sins, only God can deliver us. And just as God made the provision for the Israelites in Egypt to redeem them and bring them out of Egypt, likewise, God today has made provision for us. In fact, the very first promise in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, 21, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save, he shall deliver his people from their sins. So it's with joy that I can say this and with assurance that I cannot what the past may be in a person's life. People sometimes say, Mr. Mitchell, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just too bad to be saved. No, my friend, if you're really bad, you're a good prospect for salvation. Again, I say, you're not saved by your religion. You're not saved by being good. You're not saved by your character. Uh, there's only one Savior, that's Jesus Christ, and he does the whole business. I had a letter from a, a professor one time who said, you make it too easy. There's more to it than just putting your trust in the Savior. And I wrote back and I said, and what more can you do? If Christ has finished the job, and this is what he said, I have finished the work you gave me to do. It is finished. Bowed his head, yielded up the Spirit. If God offers to us a salvation that's perfect, that's eternal, that's real, to redeem us, to buy us for himself, and emancipate us. Well, this is what the word redeem means. He not only redeemed them from death, but he emancipated them from their bondage. And when a sinner comes and accepts the Savior, he not only is redeemed for eternity, but also delivered from his bondage. This is the kind of a Savior I'm talking about one who did a complete work for men and women. Now, someone's going to repeat and say to me or, or reply and say, well, if that's so, I can do anything I want to. Let me tell you this. Let me just tell you this. If you really, if you really come to the Savior and put your trust in him, what you want to do would be to please him, to please him. And if you say, well, I can do anything I want, and that means going to sin or go back to some of your own sinful habits, You've never seen the Savior in his sweetness, in his grace, in his love. You see, he's righteous. He's holy. And the more I see of Christ, the more I realize his wonderful, infinite grace, the more I want to please him, the more I want to obey him, the more I want to worship him. I hope I've made myself clear. People say, well, what about that verse, uh, Philippians 1, 6? He which hath begun a good work in you shall perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's right. It's still his work, isn't it? Still his work. And as Colossians 1 says, Colossians 2, pardon me, Colossians 2, 9 and 10, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are filled full in him. This union with the Savior. You get a new life with new prospects, with new ambitions to please him. As I've oftentimes said, and I repeat it, the moment I say I put my faith in the Son of God, that faith will be evident by obedience. And the more you obey him, the more you worship him, the more you love him. And as the Apostle John says, his commandments are not grievous. No, 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 he loves you. 
He loves you more than you realize. Oh, that we Christians, and I include Mitchell in this, I wish indeed we knew the Savior as we ought to know him. An amazing thing, a person can go on for 50 years and 60 years maybe and be a Christian and know so little of the Savior who loves us. And when I'm talking to you, my friend, I'm talking to myself on this question. We haven't begun yet to explore or to experience or to have that knowledge of God manifested in his Son. We would be able, we would, if we did, we'd say with Paul, if we be beside ourselves, it's to God. If we're sober, it's for your cause. For the love of Christ overmasters me. If we be beside ourselves with the ecstasy of it all, it's to God not to be broadcast, not to tell everybody about it. It's to God. But if we keep sober, it's for your cause because the love of Christ overmasters me, gets a hold of me. Not my love for him, his love for me. So when I come to the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, and I see the redemption that God has made for this race of slaves. I can't help but talk to you, my friend, of the fact that God loves sinners. He loved them enough to die for them. And as 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And remember, it's God's Passover. And the people of Israel, they believed God. They obeyed the message. And they worshipped. You remember, you find that in verses 26 down to verse 28. The people bowed their head and worshipped, and they did as the Lord had commanded Moses, so did they. In other words, their obedience and their worship was the evidence that they believed the message God had given to them through Moses and Aaron. In verses 29, uh, down on down to verse 30, 29 and 30, uh, you have the judgment upon Egypt, the firstborn, and so on. And verse 30 says, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you out of here. Go on, beat it, and leave my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and take your herds, as you have said, be gone, bless me also. My, what a change. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we all be dead men, we be all dead men. You remember that how Pharaoh had, had fought the purpose of God. He said, go ahead and serve God, but serve him in the land and serve him on the border. You old folk, go and leave your babies behind. All right, take your babies, but leave your stock behind. Now he said, take the whole caboodle and get out of here. That's an awful word to use, isn't it? But you know what I mean. And the children of Israel did their thing. Starting in uh, at verse 31 and running right down to, the, down to verse 42, you have the Exodus. And the people spoiled the Egyptians. Notice what it says. I know some people say, you think that was right? Now, just a minute. He called to Aaron and Moses said, get out of here. Take your flocks and herds. 
Now you go down to verse 34. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound on their clothes upon their shoulders. And children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent them unto them such things as they required. And they spoiled the Egyptians. Let me spoil here for a moment. I've had people say to me, Mr. Mitchell, do you think that was fair of God? Is God righteous to do a thing like that, to ask the people of Israel to to borrow things of the Egyptians, knowing that they'll never pay them back? Uh, well, that word borrow, if I were to change the wording, and I think I have a right to do that in this connection, they, they asked the Egyptians for jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they gave unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. Fairness? Tell me something. How long had these Israelites served the Egyptians as slaves for centuries? No wages, living in mud shacks, barely eking out a living, not paid for the work they were doing. They were slaves, just given enough to live by so they could do their work. They had no wages for over 300 years. Don't you think the Egyptians owed them something? Now, let's be fair about it. Sit down and analyze it. They're going to leave the land of Egypt. They must have things when they go into the, into the promised land. As you go on through the book of Exodus, you'll find where they're going to make a tabernacle. And they need the gold, and they need the silver, and they need the jewels. They need all these things. And they spoiled the Egyptians. That is, they, the Egyptians poured upon them the wealth they had and gave it to these slaves. And I tell you, they owed it to the slaves. Verses 37 and 38 mark something. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men. 600,000 men besides their women and their children. And a mixed multitude went up also with them, with their flocks and their herds, even much cattle. Now, what is this mixed multitude? Well, I, I take it that they were possibly, it could have been, it could have been that some of the Jews had married some of the Egyptians, I don't know, maybe some of the Egyptians who had seen the power of God that their God, Jehovah, Israel's God, Jehovah, was the only true and living God. And they didn't want to stay in Egypt with the idolatry. They caught a glimpse of the living God and wanted to leave with them. I don't know. I'm just suggesting a mixed multitude. But I'll tell you one thing. The mixed multitude made trouble for them afterwards. You can go to the book of Numbers and read of their history and their travels. Come to chapter 11, for example, of how the mixed multitude uh, they didn't like the manner, made trouble in Israel, caused the people to murmur. I was so loath at this light food, they said afterwards. And by the way, may I say, it's the mixed multitude in our churches today that cause trouble. Everyone who was a church member is not a Christian. 
They can be religious, but they're not indwelt by the Spirit of God unless they've had a real, they've really put their trust in the Savior. There are a lot of people who belong to churches who are not Christians. They're religious. And even in our evangelical churches, there are those who've made an empty profession. Mixed multitudes oftentimes make great trouble for us. As it was in this day, 1,500 years approximately, B.C., till today. This mixed multitude went out with them, mixed up with the Jews. Made trouble. But on to verse 40 and 41. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who were dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. Came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. For this is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in the land of their gener uh, uh, children of Israel in their generations. The selfsame day, I again say, my friend, God is always on time. You remember in the book of Genesis 15, 13, uh, God said to Abraham, and I bring it back up again, this promise, this prophetic promise to Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis when he said, your people, your descendants will be strangers in a strange land for 400 years, and I'll bring them up. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. I'll bring them up with great substance, for the cup of the Amorites is not yet filled full. Self, same day. May I again declare to you, my friend, God is always on time. Don't you forget that, will you? You see, most of us, and I include myself in this, how easy it is for us to ask the Lord to hurry up. Lord, don't you know what's going on? Don't you know what's going on? Why don't you hurry up and come? Or why don't you hurry up and do something? And we always want to hurry God up. And we waste time by wanting God to hurry up. God is always on time. We were saying in the book of Acts, you remember, in chapter 10 of Acts, God worked at both ends, always on time. He worked on Cornelius down there in Caesarea, a Roman soldier, and he worked on Peter over, Peter over here in Chopper, and at the right time, he brought them together. God is always on time. Our Lord was born at the exact time, in the fullness of time. God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Might redeem those who were under the law. We might receive the adoption of sons. I'm quoting Galatians chapter 4. In Romans chapter 5, at the right time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He came at the right time. He died at the right time. Oh, you said, uh, the Romans took care of that. The Jews took care of that. Just a minute. Jesus said in John chapter 10, No man taketh my life from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. Don't you forget that. Pilate said, I could take a... I, don't you know I can kill you? Or I can set you free. Jesus said you couldn't do either one or the other unless my father gave you permission. I could call for a legion of angels. Even when he was on the cross, 
he cried, it's finished, bowed his head, yielded up the spirit. And the Romans didn't even believe he was dead. Herod tried to, I mean, pardon me, uh, the Roman governor, the Roman governor said, Pilate said, are you sure he's dead? Yes, he's dead. Could hardly believe it. Not a bone of him should be broken. That's what you have down here in this 12th chapter. They broke the bones of the thieves, but not Jesus. He was already dead. You remember a Roman soldier took a spear and pierced his side, and out came blood and water. He's dead. Well, from 43 to the end of the chapter, 43 to the end of the chapter you have, the ordinance of the Passover, it's for Israel alone. I'm not going to go into it, but the Jews, I repeat it, through the centuries kept the Passover, and no stranger is allowed to eat of it, except those who were bought with money or was, was in the house who had been circumcised. They must have the sentence of death in themselves. You remember that? That took place in the 17th chapter of Genesis where Abraham circumcised all the men of his household and his boy Ishmael. Circumcision was a sign of a covenant between God and the descendants of Abraham. And so you have it here in Exodus. You keep the Passover. It's to be just for Israel. Don't we keep the Passover? No, we don't. We Christians don't keep the Passover. Well, you have the Lord's table, communion service. That's not the Passover. The Passover is the remembrance, historical, of a historical fact, of the leading of a nation out of slavery, redeemed by God and brought into his land. The remembrance of the power and presence of God to deliver Israel from the land of Egypt. It's the remembrance of an event. But when you come to the Lord's table, the communion service for Christians, we remember a person who died, who rose again, and who's going to return. It's what you have in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. We do this in remembrance of him, and we do it until he comes. We show forth the death of Christ till he comes. That the only ground of, of redemption is the work of Christ. So I, I just plead with your heart today just to go on with the Lord. And remember, he's right with you. And you can enjoy that redemption just as Israel did. Just one more thing. And you remember in this memorial, this ordinance of the Passover, which was a national sign to them, uh, they were not to break any bones. That is, the bones of the um, of the Lamb, just what you have, you remember, in the 34th Psalm, in John 19, I've already mentioned this, uh, they shall not break any of his bones. Oh, how, how detailed the Word of God is in its prophet, prophetical outlook. Way back in the Psalms, our Savior, not a bone of him shall be broken. And in John 19, not a bone of him was broken. Marvelous thing to know that we have a Savior who fulfills every detail of prophecy. Let me just close with the fact you and I can have this redemption in Christ. Listen, my friend, if you're not a Christian, if you've never put your...
trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, where are you going to find hope? Where are you going to find peace? Where are you going to find forgiveness? Just one place. God has made the provision. God has made the provision. Man didn't do this. This is God's way. I'd rather go God's way. And if God is satisfied with the work of his Son, surely you and I ought to be satisfied. Now the Lord bless you. And may you receive him as your own personal Savior. And Christian friend, again, manifest your faith by obedience to the Word of God and by your intimate fellowship with the Savior. And you find yourself usable in his hands. And the Lord bless you now for his name's sake. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great We trust that your hearts have been blessed and encouraged through the study of God's Word. You may write to us with your comments and your prayer requests to The Unchanging Word, P.O. Box 398, Dallas, Oregon, 97338. That's The Unchanging Word, P.O. Box 398, Dallas, Oregon, 97338. The Unchanging Word. And so until next time, this is The Unchanging Word radio broadcast. Life begins again.